unhelpful noise outside right now. Shouldn't pick up much. Anyway. I, I should lead because, well, actually. Doesn't it matter. That doesn't work. Doesn't anymore. matter. They're, 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 we can just put this in the podcast. <coughs> It'll be great. It's all change. <clears throat> Welcome, listeners. This is the Religious Studies Project. You've been waiting for this all summer or all winter if you were in the Southern Hemisphere. I'm Chris Cotter. I'm joined by David Robertson. Um, but this might be the last one where we do this. Uh, I'm Chris and he's David bit that we've been doing for so long, so long, now. so long. Why is that, Chris? Um, well, we're, we're shaking things up a little bit. Um, so it's been the Chris and David show for quite some time, but we've decided, um, to diversify the voices, diversify the, the people who are in charge. Um, and so, um, as of now, David and I are stepping back a little, still remaining as editors in chief, but we're uh, gradually over the rest of 2019 going to be handing over the reins to Brianne Fallon and Dave McConaughey. So next week you'll be healing, hearing from, uh, from Dave McConaughey and Chris and I will be there. And the week after that, you'll be hearing from Brianne with Chris and I. And after that, it'll who be knows? The, be the Brianne and Dave show, but yeah. we're going to, we'll still be popping up from time to time. Um, and other people, maybe. Yeah, so we'll tell you more about that afterwards. But now, um, coming back with a bang, and this is an interview that uh, Sydney Castile recorded for us at the EASR conference in Tartu, Estonia. So thanks very much to all the organisers there for facilitating it. And it's with Armin Geertz, who we had, I think it was the second interview I ever recorded for the RSP back in the day. Then he talked about cognitive approaches to the study of religion. Today he's talking to Sydney about natural selection in the evolution of religion. Take it away, Sydney and Armin. Well, now we are back at the RSP. I'm now with Professor Armin Gertz. It's now the fourth day of the EASR conference, 2019 in Tartu, Estonia. And we are very tired, but very happy to keep on continuing learning about colleagues and meeting new people as well. It's a lot Thank you, Professor Gears, for being with us. Thank you very much for inv- inviting me. And uh, please, if you, I know that you don't need an introduction because you're probably a scholar, but if you could be so gentle to introduce yourself. Yes, I'd be pleased. Um, I am uh, working, actually I'm educated as a historian of religions, but uh, at a certain point in my career, I... Um, decided that I wanted to study American Indians, so I uh, did field work with the Hopi Indians in Arizona in 1978 and 1979, and was very much concerned with um, their culture, their language, their uh, worldviews, and uh, their rituals. Uh, But I was also interested in their psychology and the way that, that they tried to live their religion, live up to their ideals, which they have very a lot of difficulty doing, like many people in in the world of religion um, have ideals but uh, have trouble living up to them, and all the kind of tricks that they play uh, with themselves and with others uh, to to get around these uh, these high ideals, and that's what moved me into um, an interest in uh, psychology and in cognition. So I was co-founder of a 
research that what became a research unit called Religion, Cognition, and Culture, mm-hmm. together with people at um, uh, my department at the uh, study of religion in Aarhus, uh, Denmark, Aarhus University, and uh, we discovered that we were not the only ones at the university who were interested in cognition and the mind, culture, and things like that. And uh, uh, we discovered there were people from all the sciences at the university who were interested. And we uh, then got together and uh, applied for money from the Danish government and got uh, a very substantial uh, amount of money so that we could... um, hire 150 people to, to um, help explore um, the uh, inter- intersection between or the interaction between uh, the brain, the body, the mind, culture, language, music, uh, art, uh, literature, um, everything uh, concerned with, with, uh, with humans. But it was called Mind Lab. So it was also a an attempt to combine uh, various methodologies from both experimental methodologies but also to historical methodologies, field work, uh, sociological and psychological methodologies and so on. And this is this spirit, this is something that, uh, this interdisciplinary spirit is something that I've um, been very much uh, involved in and uh, I've been trying to take this um, tendency, um, it's happening all over the world, of course, but take, taking this tendency back to the history of religions and uh, other disciplines like history and literature and archaeology and, and things like that to try and get people to become engaged in some of the, some of the insights that uh, cognitive approaches have, have uh, reached, but also... Um, psychological approaches, neuropsychological approaches, um, and ultimately um, we uh, have spread out into all, all kinds of uh, projects uh, that range from uh, brain scan projects to uh, um, laboratory experiments on pain, uh, to field work studies of people performing um, extreme rituals like firewalking and piercing and things like that, but also testing some of the main hypotheses that have been developed in uh, in the humanities, uh, such as Durkheim's uh, ideas about uh, collective effervescence and um, how uh, rituals... Uh, sort of con- reconfirm the group, reconfirm uh, sociality and so on, um, just as an example. And, of course, uh, testing some of the leading hypotheses in the cognitive science of religion. Uh, I helped establish uh, the International Association for the Cognitive Science of Religion, and, and currently I'm, I'm the editor of the Journal for the Cognitive Science of Religion with, with Equinox. And there you'll say, see that it is that same kind of blend of, of uh, disciplines from experimental studies, historical studies, and and so on. So this is what led me into my interest in evolution. Um, if humans are 
which I believe are both biological and cultural creatures, we know that, um, our explanations must somehow deal with the fact that as a species, we entered an environment that already had culture. This isn't something that Homo sapiens have created. It's something that other species before and and uh, continuous with, simultaneous with uh, uh, Homo sapiens uh, was happening. The Neanderthals, but also Homo erectus uh, and, and many, many other uh, uh, species in the hominin line um, were cultural creatures. So um, my main criticism of the CSR, even the cognitive science of religion called the CSR, um, my main criticism is that this, this focus on looking at mental representations as a, as a causal explanation for cultural variations um, is not quite enough. Um, and mainly because we, we are, we are uh, born into uh, cultural frameworks and networks and, and so on. And I think that any proper evolutionary explanation of, of uh, the emergence and evolution of religion should uh, deal with all those factors and not just find one causal factor. It just doesn't work. I mean, we're much too complicated creatures. And by the way, all, a lot of all uh, creatures are, are also complicated, and there are no just one single causal factors in the development of, of life. Right, right. That will be like one of the main critiques that has been done to the court CSR since its establishment in uh, 20 years ago. Well, you know, um, the, um, the cognitive science of religion arose, among other things, uh, also as a an expression of evolutionary theory, evolutionary assumptions about um, how how religion uh, arose and how it was passed on. Pascal Boyer's work on on tradition. He had always been interested in tradition. What, how how do what kind of psychological mechanisms are involved in uh, passing on tradition? Mm-hmm. And then his his very famous um, hypothesis about uh, minimally counterintuitive. Uh, ideas um, uh, he used as an explanation for what kind of ideas are passed on from generation to generation. What kind of ideas are we attracted to? And in these religious perspectives, it usually involves um, ideas about creatures uh, uh, who um, are counterintuitive in the sense that they they can do things that normal humans can't. Okay. Uh, so uh, they can fly in the air, or they can be invisible, or, or they could transform themselves into a, a statue or a tree or whatever. Uh, these are all um, violations against our normal human uh, intuitions about the world, about the physical world, biological world, and so on. And it's a it's a good um, it's a good theory. Uh, one of the problems is is that that um, it. It's not the only cause, and and is it a cause at all? We don't know, uh, because there are social factors as well. Traditions are passed on for reasons by people, 
who have organized themselves into uh, social groups. And once we accept that, then we have to look at other causal factors. And this is where sociology comes into the picture and where um, uh, theories in, uh, in uh, evolutionary sociology are relevant uh, to our understanding. So basically, my, my argument is, is that focusing on mental representations is not enough. It's important, but it's not enough. And recent work on, on cognition um, as being embedded and extended and enacted and, uh, and, so, on, and so on um are are very relevant and we need to deal with this in the cognitive science of religion we need to somehow um integrate these new movements or these new ideas so that we can better understand humans and better understand uh, uh human cognition uh, i think that's yeah. uh that delves into more what about your presentation was. Yes. Just a couple of days ago. Yes. Uh, speaking about the evolutionary forces that are playing in human history, and could you differentiate more or elaborate more on those? Because we understand what the natural selection is about, but since you have mentioned that there are other forces additional, yeah, that go from there, yeah, that would be very useful for us. Yeah. Yeah, because um, it, it's it's quite obvious that um, a lot of the evolutionary uh, theories in recent times, from evolutionary psychology to the cognitive science of religion and others who are interested in evolution, um, try to explain everything in terms of the well, what we call the Darwinian uh, model, but actually it's the, the, the modern synthesis that, that we're talking about. Okay, so this is... Uh, understanding of evolution uh, since the 1930s and onwards. Um, and what we're arguing in our book, uh, The Emergence and Evolution of Religion by Means of Natural Selection, um, is that the Darwinian ex explanation can only go so far. It has, our biological evolution has happened in the same uh, with the same mechanisms that all other uh, living creatures have been through. Uh, and our particular evolution in the hominin line led to creatures with a particular brain uh, uh, and certain behaviors and, and things that can actually be explained from, from a biological perspective. But one of the curious factors is, is that um, we have, uh, we're cultural creatures, deeply cultural creatures. And we're very social creatures, um, so we need to we need to draw on theories that also deal with social evolution and cultural evolution. And this is, of course, a very difficult issue uh, because, uh, in, at the end of the nineteenth century, uh, a lot of it was ideological. Uh, it was uh, the Western civilization that was at the top of the, the hierarchy uh, of evolution. It was teleological and so on. And <clears throat> we have uh, the, the, the authors in, in the book uh, consist of uh, Jonathan Turner, who's a sociologist, Alexandra Mariensky, who's an anthropologist, uh, a physical a primatologist as well, um, my colleague uh, uh, Anders uh, Klostergaard uh, Peterson, uh, who's specialist in um, ancient religions and early Christ religion, 
and myself um, decided to try and apply uh, cultural theories and sociological theories to evolution. And so one of the things that Alexandra um, Mariensky has discovered through a cladistic and network analysis is that um, the our closest relatives, the apes, uh, the chimpanzees and uh, bonobos, and, uh, but also gorillas and orangutans and, and so on, um, have very loose social structures. They don't, um, they're not like uh, the monkeys uh, or the baboons who have very uh, strict hierarchical societies. So what, what happened? Uh, how, how did these loose social noisy creatures, how could they move out into the savanna and survive? Okay, with the, with the, uh, the homo uh, line. And um, it seems, uh, through, also through cladistic analysis, that our emotional areas were being developed uh, for millions of years uh, through Australopithecus unt- until the, the first uh, homo, um, homo habilis and, and so on, the, the homo line uh, arose and left the forest and moved out into the savanna. And so we're arguing that this uh, ex- uh, expansion of the emotional areas, which is twice the size of the chimpanzee's emotional areas, made it possible for us to develop very complex uh, emotions and feelings, which then could lead to the development of um, a family uh, and uh, secondary emotions uh, and so on that would make it possible for a group to organize themselves into a, a, um, a, a very cooperative uh, group that can survive in the, on the savanna. And then, as soon, of course, we had tools by that time as well. And then with the development of the, the cortex, um, all of these um, emotions um, um, just took on, uh, took off. I mean, they'd be, they were supercharged by uh, development of our, of our cortex. But that's not the whole story. I mean, that's that's the that's the story of creatures that uh, um, left the forest and move out into the savanna. Um, they had to organize themselves, and this is where sociology comes in the picture. They had to organize themselves so that they could deal with uh, new environments, uh, deal with uh, new threats and 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 uh, uh, new um, insecurities and so on. And, and so we're arguing that there are um, at least four other um, selection mechanisms in the history of religion, Aha. the evolution of religion. So these are differentiated. I mean, they follow the same logic of natural selection, that from moral synthesis, but they divide differently themselves. Yeah. In a sociocultural way or something like that. Yeah, because what, what we're arguing is, is that... Uh, <clears throat> um, the, it's still selection that's going on, and a lot of it is blind, but a lot of it is not, because uh, humans have motives and and uh, uh, they they try to uh, take control of their own evolution, and we've done that ever since we have gotten symbolic competence. We we have literally been able to. Not, maybe not from the start, but at least talk our way into uh, new ways of organizing ourselves uh, and uh, new 
ideas and values and so on. This would be the cultural aspect. So we have the social, we have the cultural mechanisms. And so we're saying, okay, one of the mechanisms, we've drawn on the names of people from the old, the old sociology, not because we uh, accept everything that they've said, but because some of their insights are still relevant today. So this, fir- this first challenge moving out into the savannah was simply to organize themselves. Mm-hmm. We call that Spencerian type one, um, uh, to, to deal with both our needs as human beings, emo- especially emotional needs, but also, of course, uh, survival needs, um, and, 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 and a way of sort of gathering around a central symbol, we call it a totem, but we're not thinking of totemism as such, but uh, some kind of a symbol for of the group, of the values that the group uh, cherish, and, and, and so on. And then when you get uh, several groups who are beginning to compete in a particular environmental niche, um, this is a different kind, of, different kind of selection pressures that are at play. Um, and um, this we call Durkheimian, uh, but not for, from Durkheim's book on religion, but from his book on social organization. So it's a kind of an ecology of movements, of social movements trying to uh, survive in an environment. The next is when societies develop into complex uh, and, and compact groups of people in cities and uh, and so on, uh, but also um, uh, uh, societies that develop empires and expand and go out, uh, engage in, in in global global warfare and and uh, subjugate uh, other peoples and other cultures, then the role that religion plays is much much different than the role that religion plays among hunter gatherers uh, out in a hostile environment. And here you find that mostly that um, religions, religious organizations, they become complex and they also um, support or or either support or they go against the polity, mm-hmm. the political organization. We call that Spencerian type two selection pressures. And finally, um, within a society, there it is often there's often discrimination against. Uh, Various groups of people, and these uh, this discrimination can be on all various institutional levels, from, uh, for example, d- various domains uh, or uh, special groups or uh, neighborhoods uh, or whatever, um, and this could lead to a foment of uh, dissatisfaction with the system and. Um, that could it, it could end in violence uh, with a revolution. Uh, it could uh, it could end with that the, that group is put down. Whatever these are different selection pressures, and religion plays a different role as well in these. So, what do we mean by selection pressures? Well, what what we're talking about is that at each level in a society, from both the intersocietal but also society in general, to uh, to dom- domains like like law, uh, education, and so on, down to more uh, closer groups, and finally to to, to smaller groups and uh, interactions at a personal level. 
there's selection pressure going on, and by that we mean that people people are under pressure of some set some sort, and have to deal with their situation from individuals all, all the way up through society to groups and so on, have to deal with these selection pressures and uh, make choices. Okay, so in a way, it's both blind. There, there are pressures that, that are there. And uh, at the same time, it's teleological because people want to improve their situation or they want to make it worse for other people or whatever. And, and uh, we need to have that whole complex, um, that whole complex of interrelations in mind, both on the social level and a cultural level. Because of the cultural ideas, philosophies, um, and uh, uh, norms, and values, and so forth, uh, play different roles in each of those levels and under uh, different uh, selection pressures. So this is what we're trying to do in our book, and, and uh, I think it will help us to um, be able to explain things and not feel so bad that we can't directly apply biological theory on human uh, culture and and, uh, and uh, social uh, situations. Mm-hmm. So one of the examples that that I use to show what we're talking about is, for example, if a parliament decides to change the law on education uh, because they want to develop certain kinds of citizens, citizens that are instilled with certain kinds of values, can lead to selection, uh, can lead to pressure down through the system, all the way down through the system, um, to the, to, uh, also to the organization of schools, the, 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 uh, the teachers, their, their unions, uh, but also the, uh, the parents and of course the children themselves. And they can then also push back. They can, uh, say, look, we don't, we don't like this. We, we, we want it to be organized in another way. We want our teachers to have more time to prepare their, uh, their classes. Uh, and, uh, we want better, uh, better wages for, for, for them. It's, a, it's very important. And this will then send pressure back up and maybe it will affect the, uh, the, 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 the politicians, maybe not. Um, and this is all, it's all a very dynamic situation and a lot of it is evolutionary. A lot of it is blind, but a lot of it is also, um, motivated right. with goals. I think that's that's another understanding of how we can understand social processes altogether. Yes. We have this scope in mind. Yes. And it's important for us to pay attention to what, as as scholars of religion and and as uh, uh, people who are interested in the cognitive science of religion, to look back at what sociologists have found, and at the same time what cultural theorists have found, uh, instead of trying to reinvent the wheel or to find just one explanation, the so-called magic bullet that explains uh, everything. And this is where I, I argue, coming back to my original point, that mental representations are only a small part of uh, what it is to be human and uh, what I consider to be uh, cognition, which is not just what's going on in the brain. Excellent. So it has been a pleasure. 
to have you here at the Release Science Project. We have a lot of insights Thank you. from your interview, and we hope to have you again. Thank you very much. I enjoyed very much being with you. Thanks so much to Armin Geertz and Sydney Castillo there. Sydney did a superb job at the EASR as our representative there. And thanks again to the EASR for facilitating that. He recorded a number of interviews which are going to be coming up. Um, you know, we'll space them out over the coming weeks and months. I say we, I keep saying we. It's, uh, you know, they'll be, they'll be spaced out. Absolutely. Over the coming weeks and months. Next week, however, isn't uh, Sydney Castillo. It's an interview that I recorded with uh, Tisa Wenger at uh, the German Association Conference in Hanover just a few weeks ago where Chris and I were invited. And the interview is about how religious freedom makes religion. And also, if you check out our YouTube channel, um, we uploaded our um, keynote address that was delivered at the um, German Association Conference to YouTube. Um, it was we called it religious studies after after world religions, and um, it, it's a little bit. It was described as a Lynchian experience because we had to record the uh, keynote in a, a hotel in Amsterdam um, whilst we were stuck. Um, on our way to Hanover, so um, hopefully you'll enjoy that if you haven't seen it already. We should also flag up that uh, another addition to our editorial team is uh, Ben Marcus of the Religious Freedom Center. Um, you'll have heard him in a few podcasts over the last year, and he's joining us as our sort of um, marketing guru. Um, so he'll be dealing with you know a bit of the the Patreon stuff and the advertising stuff, but also um, he's got some really exciting ideas of how we can. Um, maybe better utilize um, all the existing content on the RSP and try and make us more useful for um, various educational contexts and for public consumption. So that's going to be developing over the next academic year. Yeah, and part of the reason for Chris and I handing the reins over uh, to Dave and Brianne and Ben is is to allow us to make these uh, more kind of innovative changes and, and develop in future. We've got a nice system running here, but up until now it's required us to be doing a lot of the the week-to-week uh, legwork. So we've never got to any of these um, sort of new ideas that we've had for a long time. So that's part of the reason for the changes. Um, also just, you know, because we need to, we need to let somebody else have a, take their spin on it. Yeah, and we're really looking forward to that, that first time that a podcast appears uh, on our mobile devices without us having done anything. You know, I've said this joke several times, but I don't think I've said it on air, which is that we're moving from um, charismatic authority to institutional authority. Um, we never saw the podcast as being about us, so it was always intended to be um, passed on um so to be a project to indeed to be a larger project and an international project you'll notice that you know dave's in the us brianne's in australia sydney's from south uh, south america but is based in in mainland europe now we're we're reinforcing the idea of the religious studies it's not the british religious studies project it's the religious studies project and uh, with that yeah come back next week and hear david talking to tisa but for now Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.
The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Bach, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter youtube itunes and other portals thanks for listening <laughs>